You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller. We're going to start off today with a recipe for red pepper soup. I've been waiting for this day for a long time. You see, I've told you about a lot of soups. I mean, a lot of soups, but I haven't gotten to share with you this awesome red pepper soup that I plucked from the New York Times nearly two years ago because I started this site just a little bit past pepper season. So for 10 months, I have tap, tap, tapped my feet until peak peco pepper picking time came around again. And I could tell you about what a find this soup really was. And yesterday, yesterday, when I hadn't planned to make dinner, because I was tired and completely uninspired, on the way home it hit me that there is more legitimate time of year to buy pepper than the present. And suddenly I was enticed into cooking again. So I swung into Garden of Eden, which, by the way, charges the same atrocious prices for peppers, whether they're in season or not, got the two ingredients I didn't already have, and burst into the apartment with a Ta-da! And a guess what? I finally get to make the red pepper soup tonight. People, you should have seen my one and only's face. Tears of joy, relief that he'd been saved from takeout boxes, excitement that we're going to eat one of the best soups in my repertoire. Nope, that didn't happen, not even close. His expression was flat, zero reaction. And then he said, couldn't you just pickle them instead? What a pain in the peck. I mean, what does he think it is, like 95 degrees outside and not soup weather or something? Really, can you tell me why people will eat cooked dishes and panini sandwiches, and this is the hardest for me to bear witness to, large hot coffees and the most scorching days in July, but if you suggest soup, they act like you're smoking a pipe. So we ordered in, which I may add is warmer and heavier than soup, But tonight, as you may have guessed, I didn't let anybody, even the one who washes the dishes and carries the groceries and always brings me water when I'm thirsty and, okay, well now I feel kind of guilty. But I didn't even let him talk me out of it. I hope you appreciate what mountains I have to climb, what setbacks I have to overcome, and what adversity I must persevere in the face of (laughs) to share with you these beloved recipes. But even if you don't, that's really, that's cool. I'll just go out, pout in the corner for a while. I do hope you try this soup because I've owed it to you for 10 months plus one day in now, and I still think it was worth the wait. Red pepper soup adapted from the New York Times, September 21st, 2005. Note, you can watch an Instagram story demo of this recipe, and there's a link at smittenkitchen.com. This makes six large servings. 12 demitasse size. You'll need two tablespoons of olive oil, three and a quarter cup of sliced onions, three large cloves of garlic, crushed, one quarter cup of dry white wine, 12 large red bell peppers cut into one inch pieces, two cups of chicken or vegetable stock or broth, two tablespoons of chopped fresh thyme, one quarter to one half teaspoon of hot red pepper flakes, salt and white or black pepper, creme fraiche for garnish, and thyme sprigs for garnish. Put the oil in a large pot, add onion when the oil is hot, cook the onions until they begin to soften and take on color. Add garlic and cook another minute, 
Add wine and cook down quickly and on high heat until there's only about one tablespoon left. Add the peppers, stock, thyme, and red pepper flakes. Season to taste with salt and pepper. Cover and simmer until the peppers are tender about 30 minutes. And in a food processor or with an immersion blender, puree the mixture until it's smooth. If it's a food processor, do it in batches. And then adjust seasonings to taste. Soup can be served warm or chilled. Serve in demitasse cups or soup bowls topped with a dab of creme fraiche and a tiny sprig of thyme. As far as doing ahead, cover and chill overnight or for as long as two days or freeze. You're going to whisk well before serving if it's thawed. Our next recipe just sounds delicious. I try to only give you delicious recipes, but I maybe just want some of these right now. It's for pimento cheese potato bites. Sorry, I blinked and I missed 2016 when this was written in that way that happens when you're so deeply in it that you forget to look up. I went from having one kid in a tiny bundle wrapped in a blanket to having two real live mobile children and they are impossibly cute and exhausting and I wouldn't want it any other way except for maybe once a week if we can find a babysitter. Like all parents ever, I think my seven-year-old says amazing things, such as when he told us this weekend we needed to get our New Year's resolutions, our revolutions ready. My 17-month-old is a tempest of curls and a blur of frenetic energy, and whenever she exhibits a low frustration tolerance, people decide that this is the perfect time to tell me how much we are alike. Not sure what that's about. Both kids got serious birthday cakes, and for once, my husband did all right, too. I got to go on a surprise birthday trip to Mexico City without kids, and then we went to Portugal with two children, had a great time, and even remembered to bring the same two children home with us. If we can do that, we can do anything, right? So, more relevant to this space, Smitten Kitchen turned 10 years old, and I wrote some completely earnest stuff about 10 years of food blogging, I gave a completely terrifying keynote address at a conference, and this was a challenge and a life lesson in accepting that sometimes 95% done, or at least for websites, it's good enough. So although my updates here have been slower for parts of the summer and then fall than almost any other year, I really love what we're cooking here more than ever, a mix of the practical sheet pan dinners, pumpkin bread, avocado toast, everyday meatballs, the platonic ideal of blueberry muffins, spaghetti pie and a taco tort, and the terrifying baked Alaska, towering Russian cakes, and more. I am forever trying to find my footing in the kitchen, trying to find a balance between the ambitious stuff that fuels me, but also, you know, dinner. Dinner that I'm actually excited to make and eat. So these lists look like we're almost getting there. Here is the recipe. If I can get to it, looks like she's got some other <laughs> recipes listed and kind of doing a whole, oh, just remembering of the last 10 years. But we're going to go right to the pimento cheese potato bites. This serves about 42 bites. Time, two hours. There's a little bit of time invested in this, but it looks like it's worth it. This will make twice as much pimento cheese as you need. You can have the cheese mixture so that everything lines up. Use double the potatoes, which you totally should for a crowd. 
Or you can save the extra pimento cheese for everything that's amazing with pimento cheese. Grilled cheese and omelets are my top picks. My friends say we should put it on celery. You can easily pre-prep these either by mixing the pimento cheese and boiling the potatoes one day. They're easier to work with cold anyway. And then chilling the potatoes for up to two days and the pimento cheese for up to a week if needed. Or by fully assembling them and baking them right before a party. They also reheat well. You can use the same approach for twice-baked full-size potatoes. Some potato scooping tips. There's a temptation to scoop them all out perfectly, but I find scooping out shallow round is sufficient once remixed to have a fully flavored potato, and it's only when I attempt to cut further that I cut holes in the bottoms or rip the sides. Even if you do, however, the oiled foil will keep it from being too much of a mess. The ingredients you need are one and a half pounds of baby potatoes. I used a mix of red and yellow. Two heaped cups, that's eight ounces, of coarsely grated sharp cheddar cheese, ideally a mix of yellow and white. One half cup of finely chopped drained pimentos or roasted red peppers. One quarter cup of mayonnaise. One to two scallions, finely minced. One quarter teaspoon of celery salt. Cayenne or hot sauce to taste. Salt and freshly ground pepper and smoked hot or sweet paprika, more cayenne, chipotle powder, and or minced chives to garnish. Put potatoes in a large pot, cover them with two inches of water, set them over high heat, and set your time as soon as you turn on the flame for 25 minutes, and then bring to a boil. When the timer rings, the potatoes are either done or need up to five minutes more. If a skewer goes into them easily, they're done. Drain and let cool until you can pick them up, or you can chill them for up to two days until needed. Meanwhile, make the pimento cheese by mixing the cheddars, pimento, mayo, scallions, celery salt, and cayenne or hot sauce together until they're evenly combined. Season to taste with salt and freshly ground black pepper. Either use this right away or keep it chilled for a week until needed. Cover a large baking sheet with foil and lightly coat the foil with nonstick spray. Heat your oven to 425 degrees. When potatoes are cool enough to handle, have them lengthwise and scoop out all but the last quarter inch of thickness of skin and potato. Essentially, you want to leave a shell there for stability. A melon baller makes easy work of this. Arrange potatoes on a prepared baking sheet. Season the cavities with salt and pepper. Mash the potato centers in a bowl until smooth and mix with half, that would be three quarter cup plus one tablespoon, of the prepared pimento cheese. Season with more salt and pepper to taste. Use a small spoon, butter knife, or small offset spatula to press or pack the filling back into the empty potatoes, smoothing the tops and then nestle them in the pan tightly to discourage them from toppling and spilling their contents. You're going to bake these 15 to 20 minutes until melty and sizzling, and then run under the broiler until lightly browned on top. Yum! <laughs> Let cool for 5 to 10 minutes before serving, and garnish with paprika and or chives when you do. That's a good one. 
Next, we're going to have um, spring chicken salad toasts. I may have read this recipe before, but it is worth repeating. These are darling and beautiful and makes you feel like you're having high tea, but not so fancy. Um, if you're taking cubes of chicken and other things chosen for their ability to hold up in a deli case and suspending them in a thick dressing of mayo and seasonings is the winter on the winter coat of chicken salad this is in the winter this is the cardigan which is to say i hope everyone is as happy to see it as i am i live for cardigan weather <laughs> while i don't have any tremendous gripe with traditional chicken salad Yes, even with mayo, I save my contempt for curry powder and raisins. I have forever had little love or tolerance for white meat. The archives here are thick with my referring to breast cutlass as pressed sawdust and worst. Worst, not worst, not worst. <laughs> it could never be argued that I don't know how to form an opinion. Thus, it surprises nobody more than me that I want to eat these every day for the rest of my life, or at least the next month, and all it took was shifting the way we usually emphasize the ingredients. Here, inspired, inspired by Squirrel's Chicken Salad, which gazing at does exactly nothing for my Los Angeles longing, a roasted bone-in skin-on for maximum flavor and minimum dryness, is torn into mid-sized shreds and tossed with a light vinaigrette before adding a great pile of thinly sliced cucumbers, radishes, celery, scallions, and herbs. This is much more a salad with chicken than it is a chicken salad. As beautiful as the squirrel version looked, favas are nowhere to be found yet in New York City, and even if they were, generally after going through the effort to prep them, I want them to be the main event. So instead, I focused on the kinds of spring vegetables readily available, no matter what your growing situation is. Laziness motivated me to ditch different dressings for different vegetables. Cravings caused me to dip into this Deb's happy place with dark pumpernickel toasts, horseradish creme fraiche, dill, and chives. Together, this was the kind of dinner that we tore into and missed dearly when it was finished. Here's the recipe, spring chicken salad toasts, inspired by Squirrel's Chicken Salad. And Squirrel's, by the way, <laughs> I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. It's spelled S-Q-I-R-L apostrophe S. So maybe some of you actually know who that is. It's probably a famous cook. But I'm not familiar with Squirrel. For this, you're going to need two to three large toasts. It could be for dinner for two. One large skin-on bone-in chicken breast, about 12 to 14 ounces, about two and a half tablespoons of olive oil, kosher salt, freshly ground black pepper, salt and freshly ground black pepper again, <laughs> one tablespoon of white wine vinegar, one half of a small cucumber, such as a Persian variety, halved and thinly sliced, one small celery rib, sliced thin, three radishes quartered lengthwise and then sliced thin, one scallion sliced thin, one tablespoon of chopped dill, chives or parsley, or a mix for garnish, three tablespoons of creme fraiche, one and a half teaspoons of prepared horseradish, liquid drained off a little plus more to taste, and two to three thin slices of rye, pumpernickel, or another dense health bread toasted. 
You're going to heat your oven to 425 degrees. Place a chicken on a small rimmed baking sheet and you're going to rub it with one tablespoon of olive oil. Season with salt and pepper and roast until golden brown and cook through. That'll be about 25 to 30 minutes. Let cool and then remove the skin and bones and shred meat into bite-sized pieces. Place the shredded chicken in a medium bowl and toss it with one and a half tablespoons of olive oil, one tablespoon vinegar, one quarter teaspoon of kosher salt, and freshly ground black pepper until it's evenly coated. Add the cucumber, celery, radishes, and scallion to the salad and toss to combine. Adjust the salt, pepper, and vinegar to taste. If you need horseradish creme fraiche in your life, I know that I always do, combine the creme fraiche, horseradish, and a couple of pinches of salt in a small dish and stir to combine. You're going to heap the salad on two to three toasts, more like two or less than on three, and then dollop with horseradish creme fraiche if you're using and garnish with the herbs. As far as doing ahead, the chicken can be cooked two days ahead, cover and chill, and then shred just before using. All right, our next recipe, apple charlotka. I'm going to start with the recipe for this, and we'll see how far we get timing-wise. This is adapted from Alex's mother, who adapted it from her mother, and so on. You'll need butter or nonstick spray for greasing the pan, six large tart apples such as Granny Smith's, three large eggs, one cup of granulated sugar, one teaspoon of vanilla extract, one cup of all-purpose flour, ground cinnamon to finish, powdered sugar also to finish, and then you're going to preheat your oven to 350 degrees and line the bottom of a 9-inch springform pan with parchment paper. Butter the paper and the sides of the pan. Peel, halve, and core your apples, and then chop them into medium-sized chunks. I cut each half into four strips and then slice them fairly thin, about a quarter of an inch in the other direction. Pile the cut apples directly on the prepared pan, and then meanwhile, in a large bowl, using an electric mixer or a whisk, you're going to beat the eggs with sugar until they're thick, and ribbons form on the surface of the beaten eggs. Beat in vanilla, then stir in flour with a spoon until just combined, and the batter will be very thick. Pour over the apples in the pan and using a spoon or spatula to spread the batter so that it covers all exposed apples. Um, I'm updating this to clarify it. You're going to spread the batter and press it down into the apple pile. The top of the batter should end up level with the top of the apples. Then you're going to bake in preheated oven for 55 to 60 minutes or until the tester comes out free of batter. Cool in the pan for 10 minutes on the rack and then flip out onto another rack. Peel off the parchment paper and flip it back onto a serving platter. Dust lightly with ground cinnamon. Serve warm or cooled, dusted with powdered sugar. Alex's family eats it plain, but uh, imagine it would be delicious with a dollop of barely sweetened whipped or sour cream. Now I'm going to read the story that goes along with this very yummy recipe for this beautiful looking cake called Apple 
Charlotka. That's S-H-A-R-L-O-T-K-A. At last, I have a new recipe for you in the heavily neglected category of Russian food. How could this have happened, you asked? Are you not married to a Russian? Does your son not respond to the question, would you like to go to the library with da? Are you still not in love with all of the Russian food you've encountered in your, holy wow, eight and a half years of courtship? And the answer is very simply, I needn't cook Russian food because my mother-in-law does it so well. Weekly, she brings us deliveries of stuffed cabbage or salad Oliver or Olivier, which is one of my oddball son's favorite foods, or blintzes or vegetable soups. Oh, and farmer's cheese, which I have come to believe Russians imbue with a healing halo and sconce qualities that most American parents just do yogurt. But she never brings us this, so I had to take matters into my own hands. My mother-in-law insists that she does not bake. That's my job. But she does make this, which the family calls Apple Fang. <laughs> its official name is Apple Charlotka, but that really gives you no more help than Thing by way of a description. Charlotka would sound like it relates to a des- dessert, Charlotte, but Charlottes, with their moose-like ladyfingers-decked grandiosity, have little in common aside from the course in which it is served. I've heard this referred to as a cake, but it contains no milk or no butter. Also a Russian pie, but it has no crusts. And or a pancake, but it's not very cakey. So I wanted to tell you that it's like a klafoutis, C-L-A-F-O-U-T-I-S, but no, that's not right either, with no cream or milk and a proportion of fruit to batter that is nothing short of staggering. So, you're just going to have to make it yourself. I know, I know. I hear you, but I cannot bear a life without dessert, without a bit of something sweet at each and every day, even though it's January when this was written, and I think that this is an excellent offering for the most resolute time of year. It contains no butter, save that which you need to grease the pan, And although it has sugar, it's not very sweet. Although it contains flour, it's not a whole lot for the size of the pan. And although it has eggs, it's not very rich. Really, the whole structure comes from apples. You will fill the cake pan nearly to the brim with peeled and chopped apples, and you pour the batter over them and then smooth it to encourage it to settle down and seep down. It fills the spaces between the apples and makes a tort of what was a pile, and then you bake it until it's done. I'm assuming that this is the kind of thing you throw together for a quick weekday night dessert, or maybe on a Saturday if your kids are staying for dinner. I assume this because it's when I have experienced it. That isn't to say that in the day since I've baked it, it hasn't come to fill other roles too. Breakfast with a hearty scoop of yogurt. An afternoon snack for an eager toddler, or simply a dessert that is the opposite of December's decadence. This is one of the few times I am sorry I did not read the story first, because I think that really helps explain this yummy, yummy food. Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.